Hi everybody, Catherine here. Just wanted to give you a quick heads up that this week we had some technical difficulties with our audio, and so there's a little bit of an interesting echoing noise and some odd cuts in there, but it gets better as it goes along, so please bear with us. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Katherine Garrett. Uh, today, I'm very excited to be joined by one of my former colleagues and my good friend, Bronte DeCardenas. So, Bronte, tell me a little bit about yourself and your career in history so far. Um, hi. Yeah. Um, so, I'm currently working at Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home, and I've had different roles there over the years. I'm currently a guide. Um, I've been mostly in the education department, also working as a research assistant with web content on slavery, short stint at Colonial Williamsburg as well. I was a student at uh, William & Mary studying history, Latin American history, museum studies. And I also got a chance to work with the Lemon Project there and the African American history in the Williamsburg area. I'm really excited to be here. Glad to have you. Also, you play the harpsichord, right? I did. So while I was at, at William & Mary, I wanted to take music because I'm a music person and I needed something to calm my nerves in the academic environment of that place. The professor only had harpsichord spots left. And I was like, well, hey, <laughs> I think the perfect person to do it. Perfect nerd. So um, yeah, I did that with him. And there were only like two harpsichords on campus, like in his studio. We got, I got the key to his studio and got to go practice and stuff. And Oh my gosh, um, that's so cool. Yeah, it was great. And, and of course, he was really excited about it. He was like, you need to buy a harpsichord, which my family was not keen on. And I still have not done it to this day, unfortunately. Okay, well, so you're particularly suited to talk about 18th and early 19th century women, right? You've got sort of the the culture. To the point that I've literally played harpsichords. I'm not trying to catch a man, which may be (laughs) the difference in our musical education. (laughs) Well, um, speaking of catching a man, (laughs) we're going to go into this week's letter. Uh, This one is yet another letter from one of Thomas Jefferson's granddaughters. If you have listened to all the episodes of the podcast, we featured another Thomas Jefferson granddaughter letter earlier. Um, This one, though, is from Ellen Wales Randolph. Later, she marries a man named Joseph Coolidge, so her full name's Ellen Wales Randolph Coolidge. She's Jefferson's second oldest granddaughter, and she is a very engaging writer. Uh, Bronte, you're you're pretty familiar with the grandkids. Tell me what you really feel about Ellen. Ooh, yeah. So I have to say that early on, I I loved her, and I and I thought she was so interesting. And I haven't been able to find this information. I haven't done a lot of digging, but one time I heard the anecdote that. One of her cousins said that she could have been the president had she not been a woman, and I'd have to look more into that. But it all remains the same that she was a brilliant woman, mm-hmm. and she um, was, I think, pretty badass in a lot of ways. She waited a long time to get married, um, and she was very picky. She had a lot of suitors. So there are all these cool anecdotes about her, that she's very smart. She she was considered kind of homely but also stylish. Mm-hmm. Like homely in 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 her face, right? But she was very stylish and elegant, and like sought after because she was smart and witty, and like was lit up in conversation. But I, as I learned more about other people on the plantation, I have to say my feelings on her have been complicated because one of those examples would be when Frances Wright comes to Monticello. She was an early uh, feminist. 
Um, she, in the sense that she was writing to all these intellectuals, male intellectuals around the world, including Jefferson, uh, and she had some very radical ideas on the world. And when she was at Monticello, she did not shy away from those ideas, uh, progressive radical ideas, and Ellen was none too pleased. She said something like, she talks to like a, too much like a man, or she um, like she talks with the men too much and removes herself from the women. Uh, but the women aren't really getting to to delve into that stuff. And Frances Wright is clearly making the decision that she's really into it. Ellen was really harsh on this woman that was clearly very progressive. And then I was reading more up on um, slavery at Monticello for the work that I was doing on the website. This quote that I'd seen from her. I had seen it before about educating this um, young enslaved uh, girl, and it looks so nice. Yeah. But then when you read the whole letter, it actually has more to do with taking that girl from her parents. Mm-hmm. Um, her father is Bro Colbert, who is the enslaved butler at Monticello. So it, it, it takes on quite a bit of a white feminism lens um or the white liberal savior i guess you could say so it's there's there's just some weird themes happening there where she's um maybe not not the hero i wanted her to be when i was first learning about her i guess so she's more complicated character um but certainly a fascinating one that's i think it's interesting that you talk about sort of like the white savior narrative with that because people might say that it's a like a more modern lens to put on the past but if you look at like the whole jefferson family and the way that they talk about slavery it's always slavery is so bad slavery is so wrong we're so against slavery but when it comes to actually doing anything to end the institution of slavery jefferson does not do as much as he could have and when it comes to actually treating enslaved people as like actual human beings no one in his family does so i think that's actually i think you make a really good point there (laughs) yeah i mean if the if the description fits then and helps us understand the past i say Let's use you it. Let's use it. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so I'm going to give a little bit of context for the time period of this letter. We've had some anecdotes about Ellen when she was younger. Um, she's a little bit older. This letter comes from April 1819. Uh, it's a letter from Ellen to her mother, Martha Jefferson Randolph. And again, when these uh, sisters and brothers are sending letters back home, they are expecting for these letters to be read out loud to the family. They're sort of anticipating that everyone's going to hear what's up because everyone's interested in family news. So it makes sense to read them out loud in an audio uh, medium. Uh, Ellen's 23 at the time this letter was written. Uh, She's visiting Richmond with her sister Virginia, who's about 18 at that time. Virginia has actually, the year before this, been proposed to by Nicholas Trist, uh, the man she eventually marries. But Martha, the mother, says no. Um, she makes Virginia wait before she gets married. Martha Jefferson Randolph got married when she was very young. Didn't end super happily. Uh, her older daughter, Anne Carey, got married when she was super young. That also didn't end very happily. So Martha's a little bit nervous about getting married right when you're 17. Whereas meanwhile, uh, fun fact, George Washington's granddaughter, or uh, Martha Washington's granddaughter, calls her. she starts calling herself a spinster when she's like 16 years old. Oh jeez! <laughs> uh, I hope the times have changed. <laughs> and she's she's a little um she's joking a bit as she does it, but that's really honestly not that unusual for this time period. So okay, so well, I feel this... like people do that now. It's like oh, oh I'm totally. never gonna find anybody, and it's like sweetie, you're twenty. <laughs> 
So this is, um, they are visiting Richmond. Uh, their father has business in Richmond. So it's not exactly the social season. This isn't like when they're going there in January and everybody's having all these parties. They're just there because they happen to be there. Some key players to know, some first names that get mentioned. Uh, they mention a Mrs. Roan, who invites them to a party. Uh, this is actually Anne Henry Roan, who is one of Patrick Henry's daughters. And she was married to Spencer Roan who was at this time in 1819 a member of the Virginia General Court. Uh, he was a hardcore Democratic Republican, which is Thomas Jefferson's party. Uh, he supported James Madison's presidency. So whether or not the Rones were at their house a lot, it makes sense that they were friends with the Jefferson family. They also mention the Miss Nicholases. Uh, that would be Margaret Nicholas and Sarah Nicholas, two daughters of former Virginia governor and friend of Thomas Jefferson, Wilson Carey Nicholas. A lot of Nicholases feature in this letter. Um, their sister, Jane Nicholas, had married Ellen and Virginia's brother, Thomas Jefferson Randolph. So they're sort of in-laws in a weird extended way with all these big families marrying into each other. Basically, this is just the context of a fairly usual, uneventful family visit in Richmond, but Ellen tries to squeeze in a little bit of socializing. All right. So are you ready, Bronte? I'm ready. Um, all right. Oh, also, content warning. This letter does contain some descriptions of 18th century dentistry, which might not be suitable for all listeners. If you are somebody that gets upset by stuff like this, I will let you know before I get to that it's part. a little cringeworthy. Ellen Wales Randolph to Martha Jefferson Randolph. Richmond, April 25th, 1819. I expected to have left Richmond in the stage which carries this letter, my dear mother, but Papa's business will detain him some days longer. Virginia is decided to return home at the same time, as she does not consider that the pleasures of the town will compensate for the loss of the society of her family. Indeed, just now Richmond is anything but gay, and she could expect no amusement except for what is to be found within the walls of the boarding school. We were all invited to a party at Mrs. Roan's the other evening, and the Miss Nicholases called to invite us to go with them and return at night to their house, as the distance from the other hill to this place is great and the streets very bad. Nothing but my great anxiety that the girls should see a little of the world introduced me to, to accede to this proposal, as I feared that the family would be put to some inconvenience by having to lodge so many of us. I thought, however, I knew the geography of the house, and that this inconvenience need not be very great. And I almost regretted having given way to my inclinations, when I found the general dislodgment which our party occasioned, and particularly as the girls went entirely from my persuasions and decidedly against their own wishes. The consequence of this unwillingness was an utter neglect of the necessary preparations, and although I exerted myself to the utmost, I could not anticipate all their necessities, and when we went to dress, there was such breaking of strings and snapping of laces, such pulling and pinching and pinning, and so many concealments to make, and so much time consumed in these various operations that I almost cried with vexation. Virginia was the best of the two, and her shoulders kept popping from under her corsets and petticoats, so that by the end of the evening she was almost undressed. This was partly my fault, for in my anxiety to show the turn of the shoulder through a muslin frock, unencumbered with straps and strings, I pulled her clothes too low. Harriet had spent the day reading a novel, and when she dressed in the evening found that she had picked up a petticoat without a body, which displayed to great advantage a thick yellow-looking flannel jacket with sleeves almost to the elbows, under a muslin frock. Before the clock struck nine, my young ladies were ready, and I, having no time for my own toilet, bundled myself up after the fashion of Mrs. Morris to accompany them. 
Uh, Mrs. Morris is actually a reference to their aunt, Anne Carrie Morris, who's married to Governor Morris. And I feel like this is her saying that she's dressed a little frumpy. I totally think that's what she's saying. (laughs) There's a whole theme going on here related to frumpiness. (laughs) Yes. So she uh, styled herself up after the fashion of Mrs. Morris to accompany them. Uh, Virginia was the best dressed and much the best figure of the two, but the transcendent loveliness of Harriet's face excited, I believe, general admiration. That warmth of coloring for which she is remarkable, the rich sunny curls which shaded her forehead, and the brilliancy of her eyes made her a subject for painting, whilst a mixed expression of bashfulness and playfulness and sarcasm placed her countenance above the painter's art. Both of the girls acknowledged that they were not as much tired as they expected to be, and that the evening passed pleasantly enough. There were no young men of any sort of distinction. Indeed, there are at present none in Richmond, either natives or visitors. Francis Gilmer, even, has left us to go with Mr. Patterson to Georgia. I tried to make the girls regret Wilson Nicholas's absence, but they obstinately refused to feel or express even the smallest dissatisfaction on that subject. I love that these girls are so adamant about their feelings and how they're just like, no, I don't care about that, dude. (laughs) Don't make me be a woman, Ellen. (laughs) (laughs) Let me read my novel, Ellen. (laughs) Stop making me go to this party. (laughs) All right. So that's that's the first section. So this is the the um, outing. Was there anything in that section of the letter that struck you as funny or relatable, Bronte? When you were talking about her being frumpy um, and dressing like Mrs. Norris, I think I think there's a whole theme here about her being the big sister, which is something I relate to because I'm the big sister by only a year and a half. But <laughs> I certainly took it much more seriously. And I think that that's what Ellen's doing here. I think she's being she's she's like 23 here. She's old enough. And certainly by the standards of the time, she's old. But she's clearly like corralling these girls and. So there's so much language around it. Like my my young ladies were ready. Like yes. her young ladies. And she's like writing to her mom, like giving her the news about the family and orchestrating the schedules and everything. And she said, I having no time for my toilet, bundle myself up like the frumpy woman. <laughs> yes. Um the matronly woman that I am. Um and at I just twenty three. At twenty three. And I feel like I can't tell if this is because I've read this stuff where she's considered stylish and and like a great conversationalist and like well sought after by like suitors. I don't know if she's creating this image of herself or she's just feeling very self-important. That's interesting. So I feel like this is a little bit self-deprecating, but I think mm. that she I, I I don't think that necessarily means that she isn't somebody who's usually very well dressed. I feel like it would be because she's so used to being well dressed yeah. and pretty that she's a little bit and a little annoyed that she ended up looking, going as frumpy as she ended up looking. But it almost seems like she doesn't want to go on, on some level. And none of them do. Nothing but my great anxiety that the girl should see a little of the world induce me to accede to this proposal. I love how you stress that. Like, Richmond is the world. The world, yes. Uh, but and, and I find it interesting considering we talked about how um, Nicholas Triss had already proposed to Virginia. Yes. So she doesn't need to find a man. Right. And I think she's sort of like, she's done. I think she doesn't want to. Well, yeah. Dating is over. She gets that part over with. Like, who wants to keep going on dates? (laughs) Well, and then, of course, her sister dresses her up so that her clothes are falling off. (laughs) I think that's also very relatable because I have definitely been getting ready at the last minute. And I have to say, I'm not somebody who's 
like really good at getting dressed. Although one time I went at, at William and Mary, we we're gonna go to a party, and my friend was gonna do my makeup because I don't do makeup, and it took so much longer than I anticipated. I was like, oh, she's gonna like just do a few little things. It's a whole production, which it clearly sounds like is happening here. And on top of that, they don't have all their stuff. Yeah. Yes. I I think it's interesting that they felt like they were imposing on the Nicholases mm. a little bit and like to have three people come stay with them on short notice, even though they were invited, but they also didn't want to be in a position. I thought that was an interesting little vibe, too. It's like it sounds like it could be like a fun sleepover or whatever, you know, like you're staying at your friend's house after a party, but they were worried that they were going to be too much of an imposition. Yeah. And I think that that's probably all those social norm. I mean, we still do that today. Like, are, do, right. they, do they mean that? And I feel like now even more so to some extent, because we're all coming from different cultures and we're all coming, you know, I was raised in Texas, but my mother's a Yankee. Like, I don't <laughs> Big know. Big culture shock. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> whose culture I'm following. You know, do you give the hostess time to put her lipstick on or do you show up on time? Right. And there's a whole, there's a, all these different cultural rules and I think that they would have the same cultural rules and some to some extent, but at the same time, there's a lot of guesswork and a lot of reservations and concerns about reputation, et cetera. Oh, totally. I think uh, the way that she describes people's beauty is also interesting. Um, mm. Like uh, her her expression of sarcasm was beyond the painter's art. I want anybody to describe me <laughs> ever as beyond the painter's art. <laughs> Yeah, and that she's describing it as art. Yes, yes. And 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 all the all the effort that's going into this construction of themselves before they go to the party. Yeah, it's it is work to create this image that they're putting together. But it is interesting, like you said, sarcasm. Like I wouldn't ex- have expected that to be. Yeah. A description of beauty, especially in a time when women are not really supposed to. They're you know. I don't know. Your boldness is a fine line right. that you're walking. Yes. So, uh, like, how many people do you think would have, I feel like in, in real life, like, maybe the gender roles of the time were pretty strict, but in real life, it is fun to talk to a sarcastic person. And even back then, that could be something that was considered attractive, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, even now, like, people want, like, independent, outspoken women mm-hmm. I mean, that's more interesting to have, like, an actual human being talking to you than just <laughs> someone sitting there playing the harpsichord. <laughs> Although harpsichords are great. <laughs> Although harpsichords are great, and I'm not diminishing that as an important factor in your marriageable, like, criteria. <laughs> All right. I think I'm going to go into the next section of the letter. So, again, content warning. She has a fun part of the letter where she talks about a party, and now we get into the business of dentistry. Virginia's teeth are done. There was so much to be done that it took two settings of more than two hours each. Her mouth is liberally spangled by a number of gold plugs, and Harriet says glitters most beautifully when she opens it by candlelight. <laughs> that's, I'm sorry, that's just the best thing. I Glitters beautifully when she opens it by candlelight. Just so poetic and just hilarious. Speaking of sarcasm a little bit, I think... <laughs> Although maybe not. Maybe this was 18th century standards of beauty. Maybe having a ton of gold plugs in your teeth was actually super cool. I don't know, honestly. There's so much there. There's a lot there. None of the plugs are immediately in sight. The front tooth is, we hope, saved. It is filed and filled and looks quite well. The dentist separated her jaw teeth, which were very much crowded, but did not draw one of them, as she seemed unwilling, though not positively refusing. 
three of Lucy's front teeth were filed and plugged, but the fourth pronounced uncurable. You will be a little surprised to hear that I actually summoned courage for the drawing of one of the largest and firmest teeth in my head. I confess that when the instruments were fixed in my mouth just at the second which preceded the tug, that dreadful second of expectation, I felt as if my senses were abandoning me. But I had my fright for my pains, for the tooth broke short. What remained of it resisted five efforts, coming away in fragments, whilst the roots remained fast-bedded in the jawbone, apparently unshaken by the exertion. I never saw anyone in such despair as the dentist. Sure, the dentist. (laughs) (laughs) He repeated 20 times that he had never seen teeth so thoroughly brittle, and that his strength and skill were alike unavailing. I wished, as I was under his hands, that he should finish the operation and extract the roots, but he advised me to let them remain. The gum would grow over them, and I should have no further trouble. His prediction appears to be accomplishing itself, for the lancet wounds are rapidly healing. The operation, long and tedious, dot, 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 that is all of the letter that survives. So that is asked to be where we end it. So, uh, Bronte, how do you feel? I just, ow, that's like... I'm glad you gave a warning because when I read that, both times I read that, I like my my hands curl <laughs> like unwittingly and I'm just so tense because it, ouch. I mean, I don't, there's no talk of anesthesia. Nope. And to that end, her stoicism surprises me and I find it very fascinating. Yes. Again, yeah, it's the dentist who is in such despair. It's the dentist who's in such despair, and she's just like, the operation, long and tedious, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Like, tedious, I would be, I've had terrible medical experiences, and I was not, I didn't think they were long and tedious. (laughs) I thought they were traumatic. (laughs) No, that's, um, that is interesting. So, just the word fragments really got me. Mm. (laughs) That one... Uh, tooth broke short. They don't really have any sort of like good anesthetic at this point. I think this is even before they were like giving people Camper. like, yeah, there really wasn't much. Maybe she's just being stoic because this is what everybody had to go through to even like have dentistry. But I can't imagine it. I feel like that would hurt so much that that would be all I was writing about to my mother. Well, it doesn't sound that like so like some of it sounds normal, right? Virginia sounds normal. They're talking about it pretty normally, right? The the way she's talking about the dentist freaking out makes me think that that does not happen on the regular. <laughs> like, he's like, these are the most brittle teeth I've ever seen. <laughs> I think that was also a little bit of, like, self-deprecating. <laughs> like, I have the most brittle teeth. <laughs> this dentist, it blew his mind. Well, and I can't, I think the part that was hard for me, it's like, okay, you're getting your, your tooth pulled out without anesthesia, but then, like, the fragments, like you said, like, going in, like, what was it, five times? <sighs> No, he repeated. Oh, he repeated twenty times that he had see, never seen teeth so brittle. But he went in multiple yes. times to try to get the fragments out. Resisted five efforts. I just, I, I think I don't really understand why they're pulling this tooth out. <laughs> if it's like for overcrowding or what, but I can't believe that it's actually going to be okay just leaving those fragments in because I don't know. I don't know anything about dentistry. Like, it makes me think of dentistry as a science and like what knowledge was really available to them at that point uh yeah so i did a little bit of looking into like what 
what they were working with in at around this time period for dentistry. Um, and I found, obviously, I can't say that this is exactly the book that people were using, but I was able to find uh, William Nisbet's book. It's a, a very long title, as these always are, um, but the clinical guide or concise view of the leading facts of the history, nature, treatment of such local diseases, blah, 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 blah. It has a section on teeth in there. And a lot of it was just, frankly, too upsetting to read to you. Uh, but I did want to say that one of the treatments for, um, let's see, he says, though the operation of extraction, so that's really, I mean, I feel like 18th century, they really aren't operating with much like medical wise. They don't have as much knowledge. They're working on it, but they don't have much. Pulling a tooth out is one of those things that like, we can do it. Like that tooth is bad. Mm. I'm going to get it out of your mouth. Maybe it'll help. Uh, so he said, tooth extraction is generally easy and successful, yet certain accidents have been known to attend it, which render a particular after-treatment necessary. These are hemorrhage and inflammation. Um, so I don't know. I feel like Ellen is one of the unfortunate few who had a complication yeah. <laughs> as they were pulling the teeth. And his treatment, he said, uh, was warm emollient fomentations in an application of heat in the form of cataplasm by a roasted fig or onion. Okay. So roast an onion and put it in your mouth and maybe feel better because it's warm. <laughs> I mean, I guess there might be some like antimicrobial elements to that. They don't but know about microbes. <laughs> no, they're not thinking. They're just, I mean, who knows what wisdom is like I holding out in this age of men in science, but... <laughs> It's uh yeah it's <laughs> this is my little um <laughs> this is my little sabon segment it's a history of medicine all of a sudden <laughs> uh in the middle of a women's history podcast surprise <laughs> <laughs> hey it's intersectional in all respects yes. <laughs> I think people had bad teeth teeth went bad very common if you are one of the people that was able to afford having a dentist or could have gold plugs put in that was probably good a lot of people probably just didn't have teeth and i think it's interesting that this is kind of the upper crust of society this is this mm. is thomas jefferson's granddaughters and i know they didn't have a lot of money but they had a lot of like prestige and family connections and land rich land rich <laughs> yes and they're still like young debutantes out there in their lovely dresses with a front tooth not there so i just think that's interesting the, the whole glittering thing. That's what got me about that. So Harriet's saying that it glitters most beautifully when she opens it by candlelight. I love that poetic phrasing. It just goes along with the whole, like, the hours that they just spent getting ready for this party. Yep. Like, they put that much effort into their, into their dress. And then you can imagine them sitting at a party with gold teeth sparkling in the candlelight. Like, this is not your BBC yes. like Jane Austen. This is um, <laughs> some some pirate-looking mouths <laughs> on the fine ladies. There is a lot that's relatable about these letters, and there's a lot that, like, sort of from time immemorial, like, getting ready to go out, there's something that you'll be able to find to empathize with. But then things really were very different, though, as well at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's one of those things that, like, people just wouldn't have teeth. It took a long time to get places. If you were in the country, you were a little bit secluded from everyone. Slavery is obviously happening in the background. It's never mentioned in these letters. But so, like, there are, like, these dramatic differences that kind mm -hmm. of jerk you out from relating so heavily to these letters. It also makes you think about because there are so many similarities, it makes you think about what's going on in our own lives that would jump out as period specific for us. Right. Um, because all these emotions, like the big sister thing, like that just, I felt that so hard. Yeah. But I 
when I had to get my cavities filled, it was like an identity crisis and I hated it. <laughs> but like, they're my molars. Like, nobody sees those. <laughs> nobody cares. It's like really common. And, and Americans especially, we have we're known for having great teeth. This is now. a great point. <laughs> <laughs> now. Um, but, you know, there's there's all this stuff about sugar, too, and, and the elite having access to sugar. And, you know, maybe that had something to do with Virginia and, and Ellen having terrible teeth when they're in their early 20s. That is also a great point. Yeah. Because I think now you think of tooth decay as being something that people who are really poor and can't afford health insurance that's something that is like a marker for that but back then people weighed a lot of sugar all the time and there was no such thing really as like good tooth care maybe it was sort of the other way around yeah when and i think it makes sense that like because you're talking about like access to dentistry which we still have right that's not really often included <laughs> no um in anybody's idea of healthcare, unfortunately yeah. but um they are getting their teeth taken care of with gold fillings right gold plugs i guess you know her mouth is liberally spangled with gold yeah but if you're poor and you have and you have teeth needing to be replaced you probably just lose your teeth like you said right it's always about class <laughs> i did want to read there's a follow-up letter that well this is okay so this is later so this is almost a year later so i'm thinking that maybe the whole let's just leave the shards of your teeth in um didn't actually work out too well because there's <laughs> another visit from a dentist in 1820 and so this is a letter written from Cornelia, who is yet another one of those sisters, uh, Cornelia to Virginia, 19th May, 1820. She writes, I am truly rejoiced to hear that Sister Ellen found the operation on her teeth so much less than she expected it to be, and that all of you have got your business so happily performed, but cannot sympathize with you in your passion for Mr. Baker. For though I know people's imagination can perform wonders, I cannot conceive how even yours, Sister Ellen's, and Elizabeth's, warm as they are, can transform a dentist into a hero, or be so much interested in him, had he the form of an Apollo, and every grace and beauty belonging to gods or men. Can we talk like this again, please? <laughs> I just, yes, I love it. <laughs> I mean, I think people look at you weird when you compare people to Apollo now, but I think a dentist would appreciate that. I just love this hot dentist. I know. Well, do you think that that's what they're saying? Because that's what I oh, kind of was getting. I think they okay. all fell in love with this dentist. Oh, watch out, Nicholas. <laughs> yeah. And also, just um, again, from Monticello, you get a little bit familiar with some of these granddaughters. Cornelia is kind of the like kind of nerdy one right she's the one that like she can be a little grumpy in her letters so i think it's hilarious that she's like i do not understand <laughs> how you are so head over heels over this dentist hey i think we've just solved why ellen was so cool calm and collected <laughs> yeah. i think she was trying to be cool in front of the hot guy <laughs> i get it now <laughs> she's like i'm badass Look at me. I'm I'm Ellen. <laughs> Ellen Randall. My teeth are very brittle, but I am very stoic. <laughs> so, yes, I wish we had more. I wish we could finish the letter and get whatever parting nuggets of wisdom that Ellen had for us. But this is an example of one of those letters that we just don't have the whole thing. Didn't all, Not all of it survived. I'm sure she would have loved to tell us more. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet she had some really good lines in that next page. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... Bronte, do you have any sort of final thoughts on what we can learn from this letter and take away with us? Well, first of all, let's be grateful for 
even the limited access to healthcare that we have now. And cheers to modern medicine. Cheers to stoicism and like badassness, even when it's for a hot guy. <laughs> I wish my dentist wasn't Apollo. Yeah. And then I think just keep in mind that image of these beautiful ladies in their beautiful dresses and their glittering gold teeth. Yes. By the fireplace, mm-hmm. as Mr. Darcy talks about. Right. Maybe their armpit hair. Who knows? Oh, please. Yes. yes. <laughs> I mean, beauty standards, all the, all, the, all the changes in beauty standards just goes to show that what everybody's telling you now was totally different in another time. They were telling you something else then. In 200 years, they're going to be making so much fun of us for what? For... <laughs> <laughs> right. Again, it's like it's fun to think about what we're doing now that stands out to other periods. Absolutely. They're going to have a great laugh. <laughs> It'll be great. I want to hear that podcast. Thank you for coming in and being such a fantastic guest and having such great insights into this letter, Bronte. I love it. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So with that, uh, I will have the text of the letter and some of my additional primary sources in the show notes. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. And as ever, I am your obedient and humble servant. Thank you. Hello everyone, it's Catherine. Uh, Really quick, I just have a couple of updates at the end of the episode. First of all, huge thanks to everyone who has taken the time to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Uh, Again, it's a silly algorithmic thing, but it's a huge help. And so far, we've had some lovely feedback. So thank you so much. Uh, Again, the budget for this podcast is exactly zero dollars. So that means our marketing budget is also zero dollars. Every time you share the podcast with a friend or you do something like leave a rating on iTunes, it gives us a huge boost. So I'm just so thankful for everyone who's taken the time to do that. One update to share this week is that our website is now live. So feel free to check us out at humservt.com, humservant.com to find episodes, show notes, And it's a good way to contact me if you have ideas for future episodes. So feel free to check that website out. Um, Also, if you haven't already, please tweet at me at twitter.com at H-U-M-S-E-R-V-T. Or you can find us on Facebook at Your Most Obedient and Humble Servant. Again, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with another great letter. Thanks. Bye.